0: just the best literature hello again everyone thanks for listening in today well again i don't have any comments and i said last time i was hoping for so many because we just finished lord jim so i still want comments so let's get him in here all right on our last podcast Deborah and i finished discussing joseph conrad's compelling novel lord jim Now, this book is worth reading again if not just to capture and meditate on Conrad's comments and insight into human nature. It really is a book that you can think about over and over again. Now with today's program, I am beginning our JBL, what I call, short series on Herman Melville's American classic Moby Dick or The Whale. Now the reason why I'm calling it a short series is the book contains 135 chapters, and uh, that means that it would uh, be next to impossible to cover the entire book within a JBL series. We'd be on it until next July. <laughs> so so what I've done is I have worked to abridge our reading to about 47 chapters. now. Many of these chapters are only about five pages, so you will not be reading a book the length of Lord Jim along with me. So, But you will be getting a good flavor of what the book is all about. Now, I do recommend you read the entire book of Moby Dick because it really has a lot to it, has a lot in it. And I think it would be worth your time to do it. But um, because we want to move on to another new series totally, um, we need to uh, be a little bit let's say uh, tidy with how many programs we have on Moby Dick. Now what I've done is today I've listed the chapters for you on JBL at Twitter and I've listened uh, also uh, put them on Facebook and so for JB the JB literature page they're on Facebook so you can see what the chapters are and uh, we're, we're also going to be, uh, posting some more information on the Moby Dick series, and so you can just keep following that. Now, in these early chapters, uh, the, and I'm say, saying beginning with chapters one through ending 31, there is a good flavor for the novel. It, it, uh, it really is a great story. It really is, uh, has a lot of great writing in it, and um, there's uh, so many quotes, there's quotable quotes in there, and so it would really give you the flavor for the novel. Now, with the remaining chapters, and again, I'm only going to give you 47 chapters total, so that's a lot better than um, you know the 135. But with the remaining chapters, uh, there is a primary focus on the leadership talent and tragic failure of Captain Ahab, and so so essentially, uh, listeners out there, uh, what we'll do is we'll give you a flavor for the book, but then also we will go into really, a, I think, a study of the failure of leadership gone awry. And that's really what the story of Ahab is all about. the, the uh, Ahab was really talented and then he ended up uh, destroying a lot of people's lives. Now if you look at, uh, at our country today and if you look at the world today, I think uh, you would say that uh, we're experiencing leadership gone awry. And so uh, again, this is uh, it's really kind of a timeless book, and I think uh, I'll be giving you more of this as we go through this program today. Now, <clears throat> to introduce the series, what I want to do is I want to answer the question, why read Moby Dick? And I think that's a fair question. And what I want to do is, is uh, I want to do this with you, um, or for you, with the help of author Nathaniel Philbrick. Now, he's the author of many books, he's, a, he's a, a, a real historian on the area of Nantucket Island. Um, he's written a, a series of really great books. One of the most recent ones is the book titled, In the Heart of the Sea. And uh, this book is actually an historical account of the tragedy of the whale ship Essex. And uh, it, is, uh, it is actually the history that Melville based Moby Dick on. And so so uh, Melville really used that history and in fact if you have ever seen the movie in the heart of the sea the movie opens with um uh Herman Melville a character playing Herman Melville and he goes and he uh, he uh, interviews one of the last i guess living sailors of the the uh ship Essex and uh, there is a uh, uh, a lot to what happened on the Essex that is covered in Philbrick's book. And even that is a really good book to read and I highly recommend that one as well. Now, unfortunately Mr. Philbrick is not joining me in the studio today. That would be exciting. I don't know if I could ever ever get him to uh, come on the radio with us. He might he might do that. Uh, I found out I'm just about four years older than he is, so maybe we could have an old guy discussion of, of Moby Dick. Uh, we'll see. I might, I might actually just try and contact, contact him as a fluke to see what happens. So, uh, but what I want to do is I want to use his little book called, Why Read Moby Dick? <laughs> and so, so uh, this is uh, something that I've used in my class. And uh, so what I'll be doing today is I'll be reading some excerpts from this little book. Now, I also want to tell you, uh, listeners out there, that, that actually um, we're going to be going through this book um, on the radio at the same time I'm having to go through it in class. And so our students are going to get the same 47 chapters because we, we only have so much time uh, that we can do, uh, do on the book. And then we have to move on to another book on Abraham Lincoln. And actually, uh, as as we go through this today, you'll see that um, actually Moby Dick was written just before the Civil War in America, and so it it really does have a lot of history. But the first point I want to make with you today is Moby Dick is really a compendium of different literature. And it it is probably the most unique book I've ever read in my life. And uh, I have had a lot of chance to go through it, teaching it here at the college. Now the definition of compendium, just in case uh, maybe you would need to be refreshed on that uh, that word, Uh, we don't use it every day of our lives. Uh, At least I don't, even though I'm a literature uh, instructor, I don't use that every day. But the word compendium means a collection of concise, but detailed information about a particular subject, especially in a book or other publication. And so, so when we look at Moby Dick, there's, there's so many different aspects of the book. And so, so essentially, it, it's like you're reading a compendium. And I'll, I'll explain this as we go. So Moby Dick definitely is fiction. So there is a story, there's a cast of characters, there's, uh, there's themes, there's, ele- there's elements to it, there's symbols. And, uh, and there is a story you know, in the book, and it's, it's an interesting story. And Melville is such a great writer, you want to keep reading to find out what's going to happen. Now, but also in the book, uh, and, and I think this is what really makes the, the book great, it's really, it's, it's also, it is an encyclopedia of facts on whales and the whaling industry. And so some of the chapters that I've skipped for you are chapters on, well, the, the, the skeleton structure of whales, or the, a chapter on the different heads uh, of different whales. And, uh, you know, you have right whales, you have sperm whales, you have, you know, you, you have different, different kind of whales. Um, and so, so uh, there's even chapters on the skin of the whales. There's chapters on the blubber of the whales. And so, so in some ways, uh, <clears throat> th- those things are interesting to read. But sometimes, when you're just after the storyline, uh, you can skip over those. But they're still fascinating. And I think the one thing that's that that makes that uh, makes Moby Dick so interesting is that, that he, he was really kind of like a genius. He has a storyline, but then he puts all these facts in, and having all those facts in there, and having, uh, you know, he would give some history in this as well, and, and we'll, we'll cover that before we get through this program today. It really makes the book come to life. It makes it seem more real, and uh, it, it there's really a genius way of writing it. Now, uh, again, I'll, I'm gonna talk to you in just a few seconds here about uh, he was pretty audacious to write a book like this in the 1850s, and uh, uh, it didn't really win him a lot of money at first. In fact, the book really didn't become popular until until <laughs> the 1920s, and so uh, now it's now it's uh, you know much more popular than it was even at the time he was alive. Now, uh, Moby Dick has an incredible cast of characters, and you know we we start out we learn about you know there's uh, Ishmael. And then there's Quequeg. and then there's the uh, there's Bill Dad. I'm just giving you some of these things. Uh, even the ship has a different name. It's called the Pequod, and so then you have Ahab, and uh, you know, and uh, you know, if, if you look at Ishmael, Ishmael is a biblical name, and it does have a meaning, and uh, we know the character, let's say, or the person in the Bible, Ishmael. Uh, was one of, of um, Abraham's sons, and and he was uh, rejected. Uh, Sarah did not want Ishmael around her son Isaac, and so he was rejected. So there's some <clears throat> there's some meaning in the symbols, and of course Ahab, there was a wicked king Ahab in Israel, and so so you can see that uh, that uh, Herman Melville did read his Bible. And he did understand certain characters from there, so um, from that book, I should say. So I think these characters really come to life because Melville mixes the true facts with the story, and so uh, uh, even uh, when you when we get into one of the chapters, uh, I think we, we're going to cover the the uh, charts that King Ahab, or I should say, Captain Ahab. Um, he, he kept charts and tracing where Moby Dick was traveling. And so, so uh, you know, just the fact they can pull out the charts and then talks a little bit about the, um, you know, the sea and geography and the certain uh, uh, lanes of the sea. And so, so it's, uh, it's really quite interesting. And uh, even Ben Franklin was very interested with the sea. And uh, uh, he's one of the ones that uh, figured out one of the warm currents of the Atlantic. It was uh, Ben Franklin that, that that did that. All right, so so he mixes facts with his story and really makes the I think all the characters come to life as well. Now I think also the the point we need to make here is that that the book Moby Dick is also somewhat biographical and. Uh, the, the reason I'm saying that is because Melville himself was also a sailor on a whaling vessel. And so, so, uh, you know, he, he was a poet, he was a writer, uh, certainly he had a wife and family, but he was a sailor on a whaling vessel. And uh, he also uh, was uh, sailing on a merchant marine uh, for a while as well. So, so uh, he, he was very familiar with the sea. Now I'm going to quote Philbrick here, and again, this little book, and uh, you can you can buy this on Amazon, and it's 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 not a bad little book. I think it's uh, actually a good uh, um, book to help you understand even Moby Dick better. But I'm going to go to go to page one, and uh, I just wa- I just want to show you, and kind of prove to you using uh, uh, the help of of uh, Nathaniel. Uh, I'll, I'll just call him Nathaniel now, that we're good friends because I read his book. But uh, uh, here's uh, some of the biographical things that I think are really, really important for you. Uh, this is page one, and uh, he's using the title of, it, of this chapter is The Gospels in this Century. And uh, actually, Melville referred to his writings like that. He said at one point, I wrote the Gospels in this century. So here's how this quote goes, out, goes, uh, goes. It says, Early in the afternoon of December 16, 1850, Herman Melville looked at his timepiece. He was in the midst of composing the novel we now know as Moby Dick. At that moment, he was writing about, four, uh, about how four thousands even millions of years, whales have been filling the atmosphere over the waters of the Pacific with a haze of their spouts sprinkling and mystifying the gardens of the deep so that's a quote from the book it was then that he decided to record the exact time at which he was writing these words about whale spouts 15 and a quarter minutes past one o'clock p.m. on the 16th day of december a.d. 1850 and so so when you Pick up your copy of Moby Dick. Maybe you have it already. If you go to chapter eighty-five, you'll see that in parentheses. And so, so here he's writing, and uh, obviously he's he's uh, thinking about um, even some of his experiences on a whale ship, and he decides to put right in the novel the day he was writing that chapter. And so, so to me, I think that is really kind of fascinating, and it's really kind of unique. And uh, in some ways, uh, we'll be talking about how audacious he was at even writing a book like this. It says when Moby Dick was eventually published in November of the following year, the date in the passage was changed from 1850 to 1851. But that is no matter. Now the the uh, the source that I have from Penguin, and it's a beautiful source. It's it's a it's a copy of uh, you know Moby Dick. It's just really beautifully made. Uh, it's been changed back, so it, it, the original thing he wrote is actually there. So I think that's that's really important to do. So it says, uh, uh, he, he says, the fact remains that in this tiny chapter titled The Fountain, and uh, he says that's, of course, the 85th in a novel that would eventually extend to 135 chapters, it says Melville did something outrageous. He pulled back. He pulled back the fictive curtain, and inserted a, an, a seemingly irrelevant glimpse of himself in the act of composition. So, so there it is. He's writing a novel. It's fiction, but then also, all you listeners out there, there are elements of fact in it, and there's, I think, also elements of his own biographical. Uh, inserts into it as well. And uh, Conrad was excellent with that. If you if you really study Conrad and you study some of his letters, if you study some of his uh uh he did some some uh, autobiographies as well. Uh you know, he'll tell you he wrote this because of this and you know, th- there's there's so many writers that do that. Phil Breck goes on to say I I I've now read Moby Dick at least a dozen times. And this reference to a specific time and day in December remains my favorite part of the book. Whenever I come upon that sentence, I feel as if I am there with Melville as he creates the greatest American novel ever written. And I agree with, with uh, him wholeheartedly. Um, you know, it's that, uh, you know, he, he definitely, 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 definitely was, uh, you know, writing. Uh, some of his own history into it. Okay, I want to read to you another quote. This is page 3. And uh, just just to show you some of the effort that that he went into to get this book written. And and in some ways, I think, uh, we've just finished Ben Franklin's autobiography. We finished Conrad's Heart of Darkness in in the college. But uh, this reminds me in so many ways of Ben Franklin and his dedication to his job. This is uh, page three of the book. It says Once seated at his desk each morning, he was literally consumed by his, his story. Sometimes working past four o'clock in the afternoon without pausing to eat. When exhaustion finally forced him to stop, he spent the evening sitting listlessly amid his extended family, in what he described as a sort of mesmeric state. And uh, you know, I've I've been writing really as a, a paid writer, professional writer since I was twenty three. And uh, I've written some stories, even on the life of King David, and uh, have even written a story related to Paul. And uh, sometimes I would get so, so into those stories that, that I felt like when I uh, quit for the day and I came home, I had to really kind of recognize, well, I'm back in reality again. And so, so you know, when when you have uh, really talented writers, that seems to be you know what can happen. But uh, Philbrecht goes on, he says, not only was he drawing upon his own experience in the Pacific, he was also immersing himself in scientific treatises and narratives associated with the whale fishery. So, so essentially, this man was pouring in a lot to, to get this book written, and I think it deserves our attention. And uh, again, I'm not so much interested in whales and whaling but uh you know when you see the effort that went into it i mean it really teaches me as a writer what i need to do to write something profound you need to do a lot of research and uh it really is the the book is like a mini encyclopedia an encyclopedia excuse me on whales and the whaling industry and so uh uh i i think that's that's fascinating just fascinating and so I think the, uh, the other thing that uh, I want to say about this novel that, that uh, makes it a compendium, when Moville when excuse me, when Herman Melville, I was just looking down at my notes and I saw Herman and Melville, and I came out all mixed up anyway. But when he was writing Moby Dick, he was also being heavily influenced by some of the greatest poets of all time. I mean, he studied Virgil, he studied Milton. And uh, he also, at, at the same time he was writing this, as Philbrick brings out, he was really studying Shakespeare. And uh, uh, let me just quote this to you. Um, you know, uh, from This is also from page three uh, from Philbrick. He says, most important, his recent. An omnivorous reading of Shakespeare, Milton, Virgil, and others meant that the voices of these writers were as fresh, and as accessible to him as anything he might read in a newspaper or a magazine, and so, so you're going to find as you start reading this, and and again, I've listed all these chapters for you, uh, up on uh, Twitter today. I've lifted, listed listed excuse me. I've listed them also up on Facebook today, and so. When you get into chapters 36 through 40, um, you can see that he was really being influenced by by Shakespeare. Um, These chapters are obviously experimental. Some are written with poetry. Several are written as scenes from a play. He even titles one of his chapters, and that was chapter 31, as Queen Mab. And Queen Mab was the name of a fairy from Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. And so how does Queen Mab get into a whale book? You know, you have to really think about that. So he's just being, being influenced by that, and so, so that in itself, I mean, it, it shows to me how audacious he was, and uh, you know how he was, he was really, really willing to go out and experiment, and uh, I, I think uh, the people in his time could not appreciate it the way we can today, or maybe, uh, maybe you just have to be crazy about literature. Um, the next point I, I think I want to make is is um, about this. There is really, in in this book, there's there's a lot of history of America's expansion, and so when he was writing Moby Dick, America was really expanding, and if you if you really know the truth, the uh, uh, America was dominant in the whale oil industry, and that's what put you know Nantucket on the map and uh, Nantucket was known worldwide. And so so uh, uh, there was a lot of international flavor and a lot of international people living in Nantucket at the time of this industry was really, really uh, taking hold. And actually it was the whaling industry that put the, uh, I, I think it was one of the first big steps to making America a superpower. Because it, it uh, I mean, the America just, traverse the globe to find whales. And uh, some of these whaling ships would be out three years at a time, you know, adding oil and g- gaining oil. Uh, this is what Philbrick says, and, and this is another really good quote. It says, in 1850, the United States was in the midst of pushing its way west across the full 3,000 mile breadth of the North American continent. Railroads had railroads had begun to knit together the interior of the nation into an iron tracery of ceaseless smoke belching and movement. Steamboats ventured up once inaccessible rivers. With the winning of the Mexican War in 1848, America's future as a bi-coastal nation was sealed. When word reached the east coast that gold had been discovered. Uh, Earlier in the year in California, thousands upon thousands of prospectors quickly made the future, that future an accomplished feat. But there was a problem with this juggernaut, a lie festered at the ideological core of the then 30 states of America, even though its founders had promised liberty and freedom for all the southern half of the country was economically dependent on african slavery ever since the signing of the declaration of independence the issue had been gnawing at the heart of america and now after decades of, of avoidance and evasion it was becoming clear that the nation was headed for a crisis and so so this is right before the civil war he's writing Says with the passage of the Fugitive Slave Act in 1850, which required that escaped slaves found anywhere in the United States be handed over to the authorities, slavery was no longer just a Southern problem. All Americans, both above and below the Mason Dixon line, were now legally bound to the institution of slavery antagonisms that had lain dormant for decades could no longer be contained and an eruption of terrible violence appeared inevitable despite all its brilliant successes America was on the verge of a cataclysm and so so that's what we have to realize that uh, you know here, here Melville was writing uh, Moby Dick at the same time and what we have to see uh, readers out there is that That uh, certainly some of this history also filters in to the book, Um, you know. So, so uh, uh, in the story, especially when you read um, the 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 chapter about Nantucket, I put that on your list, especially because you have all uh, you have a lot of different peoples living there, and of course, if you look at at Ishmael, uh, Ishmael is white. Queequeg is from like an an island like New Zealand and uh, you know he's he's all marked up with tattoos he's different but if you if you look at the relationship between Ismail and Queequeg they become bosom buddies and so so you can see I think that that Melville is trying to get that across is that we really as human beings whether you're black or white whether you're Indian he there's a lot in uh, Nantucket about how you know, the white, you know, people from England took over the island and they took over and they kind of pushed the Indians out. I mean, we still have problems with that. Living in Oklahoma, I mean, uh, the whites here, we live right next door and the indigenous American people. And so, so, uh, you know, you can see that. So, so, um, you know, you can't not help read this book and not, and know, not know that, you know these these ideas are going to come into the book, and we'll get into some of that as we go along there's there's some great quotes um Melville also had trouble with um with uh some of the uh more formal religions and uh you know didn't agree with the way they taught and uh, so so that's interesting now the the other thing I think that that uh we we have to admit about Herman Melville. Is, is he was kind of really audacious in uh you know writing Moby Dick because of the competition he was facing and uh I mean can, can you real do you realize you know who he was writing up against they said uh, uh this, this way what uh, um Philbrook has to say about that he said to be an American writer in 1850 was to be part of a young still tentative literary tradition Washington Irving and James Fenimore Cooper were approaching the ends of their careers while the poet William Colin Bryant was one of the most influential literary figures of the time thanks in large part to his position as an editor of a leading New York City newspaper. Uh, before his death in 1849, Edgar Allan Poe had pronounced the now-forgotten Southern novelist um, uh, William uh, Gilmore Sims. In the meantime, the poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow was well on his way to becoming the most popular and best-paid author in America. But it was the British writers such as Charles Dickens and Edward bulwer uh, who were—they uh, were the most read people in the United States. And so so here uh, you know, you have Melville uh, you know, competing with them. Ralph Waldo Emerson was uh, you know, coming up to speed, Nathaniel Hawthorne was uh, very well known. And so so you've gotta you gotta believe that that here Melville is pretty gutsy trying to write an experimental novel and uh and do well with it and uh he actually almost went broke over it. And so so uh uh again I think that that just uh gives us more justification for wanting to read the book. Well, that's all the time I have for today's program. On our next program, along with special guest um Grant Turgeon, I will begin a pod I'll begin a I would say a short podcast look at Herman Melville's classic American novel Moby Dick. Now, uh, it's going to be worth your while, though. So you can buy Moby Dick at Amazon.com. You may be able to find a good used copy at abebooks.com. You may be also able to find a copy in your local bookstore. Now, of course, you can also check your local library. So please write me any comments you may have to jbl at pcog.org. You can also follow JBL on Twitter at jbliterature one And again, there's another new series coming right after this, so we'll be announcing that in just a short amount of time. So, until next time, keep reading. You've been listening to just the best literature on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, streaming online at kpcg.fm and thetrumpet.com.